You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. In today's show, we're discussing Black Buddhists and how many use Buddhism to heal the traumas of racism. How exactly can Buddhist practices help Black Americans deal with living in a white supremacist society? How do Buddhist teachings also help Black Americans address issues of misogyny, homophobia, and transphobia? And how has Buddhism helped some Black Americans find a sense of liberation within a deeply racist world? Hi everyone, welcome to The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. I'm very excited to be chatting today with Dr. Rima Vesley Flad. She is the author of the new book, Black Buddhists and the Black Radical Tradition, The Practice of Stillness in the Movement for Liberation. You can read an excerpt from her book in the upcoming May issue of The Revealer at therevealer.org. Hi Rima, it's great to chat with you. How are you doing today? Hi Brett, it's great to talk with you as well, and I'm very happy to be here. Great. So I have a feeling our listeners will be interested in hearing how you came to write a book on Black Buddhists. You say in the book that the initial ideas came to you when you were engaged in Black Lives Matter protests in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, when you met many young Black activists. So what happened there and within your own life that led you to start thinking about Buddhism and Black Americans? Yeah, that's such a great question. So initially, I was interested in how vanguard activists in Ferguson were connecting to spiritual practices, largely because they were so exhausted and on the front lines, going out to the police station night after night, leading protests downtown, very vocal, very upfront in their outrage, going into stores, forming organizations, They were just so relentless in their capacity to struggle, and yet I wondered how they were replenishing. And it was very clear to me that the church in this particular movement, unlike in the civil rights movement, was not front and center. That's not Hmm. to say there were not individual clergy who were out there with these vanguard activists. There Mm -hmm. were a number of people who showed up and who served as sources of support, but the church as an institution was not front and center and was not a hub for organizing. And in that vein, the singing, the prayers, the collective worship that was such a central part of the civil rights movement was not as present or really present at all. I would say, and actually this is a slogan, this is not your father's civil rights movement. This is Mm. not the Mm -hmm. era of the 60s. For me, as someone who was at this time interested in contemplative practices and had burned out in nonprofit work and activist work over and over, I wondered if Buddhism as a religious tradition might be able to serve as that source of support, that kind of life-giving energy, not so much in a vocal way as much as in a contemplative or even silent way, which is another way of saying there is perhaps a paradox, but I'd like to see it as a kind of seamlessness between 
vocal protest and silent practice. Hmm. So initially, I started to ask these questions. Could Buddhism or contemplative practices more broadly, what we call mindfulness perhaps, could that be a resource? And in fact, there is something known as the healing justice movement, which is a term coined by the activist Kara Page. And in the healing justice movement, there is this narrative, there is this acknowledgement that we have to actually take care of ourselves if we are going to sustain such a rigorous level of energy. Mm -hmm. So I was interested in Buddhism as a tradition because I practice, because I study. And then in my own life, I was very aware of how much I could externalize my own suffering. And in many ways, Buddhism both serves that kind of turning outward, but I think to do the deeper work of liberation, of freedom, we also have to turn inward. And I had my own healing work to do. So hmm. I was curious. I had had a number of epiphanies, you could say, in my own life, especially as I learned about fragmentation in my family and intergenerational trauma within my own life. And so it was this question that was really outstanding. Well, so then connected to that, you say that more than half of the Black Buddhists you interviewed for your book described, quote, healing racially induced trauma as a motivation for investing in the practice of Buddhism. And even more, you say that, quote, the central thesis of this book is that Buddhist teachings and practices liberate Black people from psychological suffering. So how do Buddhist practices and teachings specifically help Black Americans? I venture, I argue, you could say, that there are profound frameworks within Buddhism and very specific practices that serve the psychological liberation of Black folk. For me, there are core teachings that particularly stand out. And one is the teaching that sometimes gets translated as causes and conditions. Sometimes it's translated as dependent origination. But in a nutshell, this is a teaching that says, we suffer and our suffering comes from somewhere. When I hear that teaching, what it does is validate that yes, my suffering is induced by mind states, but it's also a suffering that is arising from conditions, that it is arising from very specific social conditions. And that teaching for me really validates that my suffering is particular. And it has to be acknowledged as such. And yes, white supremacy and all of the ways in which that interacts with other sources of oppression really does impact my suffering. And, and Buddhism as a tradition within this teaching validates that. But then Buddhism doesn't stop there. It doesn't say these are the conditions, these are the causes of those conditions. It also says yes, you are conditioned and you can change your conditioning. And hmm. for me, there's this teaching that is translated as the five aggregates. And it's really this teaching that's called non-self or no-self. The Pali word is anatta. And the reason this teaching is so important is that on the one hand, it could be this kind of denial of personhood, which might hit people whose ancestors were called three-fifths of a human person, but not mm. a full human person. It could hit them in a raw way, like a denial mm -hmm. of humanity. But for me, mm -hmm. especially this teaching that we 
have particular mind states that come from somewhere. The term actually within this teaching of the five aggregates is sankara. In this particular teaching, it says, okay, you are conditioned, you have these states of mind, but you can recognize them, you can turn towards them. And in the turning towards your conditioning, you can actually be less gripped. So all of the sources that trigger you and turn you into a kind of spinning or spiraling mess, which I own in my own case, you know, just mm -hmm. receiving some information or being treated a certain way and being mm -hmm. so deeply triggered and really not having the emotional capacity to work with it. Actually, I can turn towards that. I can work with it. It is a state of mind. It is a conditioning, but it doesn't have to grip me so hard. Maybe another way of explaining it is being on an ocean and there are these enormous, enormous waves. So you could ride those waves and sink, right? You can be mm -hmm. swallowed by them, you can drown, or you can learn how to skillfully ride those waves and you can actually learn to turn towards everything that is so impactful and be skillful in your approach to all of this suffering, all of our conditioning. That for me is a profoundly liberating approach to what Black people in this country struggle with because yes, we are seeking to change our conditions, but in the practice of changing our conditions, in that struggle, in that vanguard activism, we can also change our conditioning. And that is just as much a part of our liberation as dismantling white supremacy structurally hmm. and institutionally. That's powerful, thank you. Well then, building from that, I'd love it if you could walk us through what some of these practices look like. You note in the book that black Buddhist communities differ from white Buddhist convert communities and in some ways better resemble some forms of Buddhism practice in Asian communities. So what does the practice of Buddhism among black Americans look like? If a listener is intrigued and wants to consider Buddhist practice as a way to address their own feelings of racial trauma, what might they encounter in black Buddhist spaces? I think in my own observation and also in the interviews I did, also in the many Dharma talks and blog entries and publications I read, I think the primary differences are that Black Buddhists honor community and honor ancestors in ways that are poignant and very direct. This is not an individualistic practice. Hmm. Without singing and dancing as part of the Sangha, it lacks some kind of luster and support for Black Buddhists. And this is where I do say that many Black Buddhists mirror Asian Buddhists in their practices. The sense of being part of a people, of coming from somewhere, is central to practice. Hmm. And what many of my interviewees said is that it's important to call in your ancestors and not just your biological ancestors. It's important to call in the spiritual ancestors who have made a way out of no way, who have inspired them, inspired us. And so that centrality of being part of a people as opposed to solitary sitting mm -hmm. sometimes for days and days on end is a distinct approach, a distinct difference. Mm -hmm. And along those lines, for many Black Buddhists, it's important within liturgies to very explicitly recognize 
different traditions that fuel a kind of homecoming, a sense of being supported, you could say, by cultural aspects, cultural practices that are not from a Western point of view. So I'm thinking, for example, of a particular writer who has published widely. Her name is Zenju Earthland Manuel. And she talks about creating an altar with Haitian deities and how important it is to have that representation on her altar. I'm thinking of a psychotherapist who's based in Baltimore. His name is Justin Miles. And he created all of these liturgies in the Shambhala tradition that specifically bring in Black voices. So that is so important to say, we don't just honor the deities and ancestors and other traditions or sit in silence and work on our minds in a kind of psychotherapy approach. Mm -hmm. We actually bring in people's images, rituals, music, cultural aspects that support our sense of honoring our African origins and honoring those who are in the diaspora. Hmm. So I want to bring up something that you mentioned earlier. You said something about becoming aware of intergenerational trauma in your own life. And in the book, you highlight the place of intergenerational trauma in Black communities, how trauma gets passed down from one generation to the next. I'm wondering if you could expand a bit on how you see intergenerational trauma shaping the lives of Black Americans today, and then how you also see Buddhism as equipped to address intergenerational trauma. Yes, I just want to say, Brett, I actually did not ask this question when I started doing the interviews, and yet it hmm. came up over and over, and it let me know that this was so central to the why why Black people hmm. might turn towards Buddhism. Hmm. And the primary aspect to surface is the very particular suffering of Black families. I mean, we can look at historically the auction block and the selling off of, of family members and the anxiety, the tremendous terror produced by the possibility and then by the actuality of families being separated. Mm -hmm. In my chapter on intergenerational trauma, I talk about an auction that was witnessed and described. And at that auction, not only were loved ones separated, but 30 babies were sold. If we look at that historical trauma and fully look at it and hold the weight of that in front of us, family members being sold away from each other as property. And we look then at these various aspects of family separation, thinking of now migration, a hundred years of the great migration, mm -hmm. in large part driven by lynchings in the South and desperate poverty, sharecropping in the South. So family members picking up and migrating to the north. And you could say that's voluntary, but if you look at the actual violence and the terror inflicted on Black Southerners, it's not necessarily voluntary. It's people having to leave for their own survival. And then if you look at mass incarceration in the present day, starting in 1973 and existing today in 2022, and the separation of families for decades sometimes over very small charges you know, related to the war on drugs, which is still going on. Mm. If we look at the fact of family separation, and this is just one iteration of intergenerational trauma, but if you really confront the weight of that emotionally, 
you know, historically and in the present day, that's just one aspect of how Black people are wrestling with tremendous and very particular pain that has been inflicted within a white society, that it's highly racialized in every iteration of that. Mm-hmm. We could go on and on and look at other cases, but the auction block, the Great Migration, I didn't even talk about Black codes in the aftermath of the Civil War, but if we look at all of that mass incarceration in the present day, it's important for us to recognize that there's a very particular kind of trauma that is intergenerational, that is, you could say, encoded in our cells at this point. Hmm. And we need to find ways to heal that, to Hmm. turn towards that, to heal that. So one of the things in your book that intrigued me was your writings about the black body. And as many of our listeners, I'm sure know, black bodies have been denigrated in the United States for centuries, depicted and treated as less than human or less evolved and over-sexualized. But importantly, you say that for black Buddhists, the black body can actually, quote, serve as a vehicle for liberation. So I'm wondering if you could explain what does that mean that the black body can serve as a vehicle for liberation? And how have you seen that play out for Black Buddhists? I wonder if this phrase, the body serves as a vehicle for liberation, is a bit unwieldy. But I do love this phrase because it suggests that the body is a kind of container. And what is so important in Buddhist practice is to move from the chaos in our minds to the movements, the rhythms, the in and out of the breath in our bodies. Hmm. And so if we can acknowledge what's happening in our minds, but at the same time start to slow to the rhythms of our body, if we can attune to our breath and to different sensations and simply be aware of what is taking place, we have this capacity to slow slow, slow down. And in that process, in attuning to the rhythms of the body, to the in and out of the breath, we can move into a kind of inner stillness. Even though there's movement, it's not to suggest that those are opposites or oppositional as much as it's to say there's a kind of inner stillness that can be lived into if we can move from the narratives and the intellectualizing of our mind. So for Black Buddhists to move from the stories in our heads, all of the narratives we carry, to the gentle rhythms of the body, to Mm. even move into rituals such as doing prostrations, a kind of uh, humbling of the body, a kind of moving into uh, a sense of receiving there's something so deeply liberating about that kind of slowing and attuning where the narratives start to drop away. And there's actually this capacity to breathe without thinking. Hmm. That takes a long time. It doesn't come overnight. Mm -hmm. But it's because we attune to our bodies that we can actually live into that spaciousness, that inner spaciousness in which the narratives, including the deeply destructive narratives, drop away and don't clutch at us with such fervor and such intensity. So that that's what that phrase refers to, the body mm. as a vehicle for liberation. 
So you note in the book that about half of the black Buddhists you met and interviewed identified as LGBTQ. And you also say that black Buddhist practices can help one not only come to terms with and address white supremacy, but also homophobia, misogyny, and transphobia. So a couple questions with that. First, why do you think black LGBTQ people have been drawn to Buddhism? And second, how have you seen black Buddhist practices and teachings address misogyny, homophobia, and transphobia? Yes, it is true. I actually think the number is higher than about half. But uh, in terms of what I know and how people self-identify, that is what I can say with accuracy. Sure. So I do think that many Black LGBTQ people are drawn to Buddhism because of the way in which Buddhism in the United States has evolved. I think that many come from churches that do not affirm queer identity Hmm. and that the ways in which what we broadly call American Buddhism, the ways in which it has unfolded in this country allows for a kind of multiplicity of identities so that it's okay to be queer in these meditative spaces. Hmm. Now, much of what we call American Buddhism is extremely white and very homogenous. So there is a kind of alienation on that level, but not necessarily with regards to sexuality. And I think there's a sense that all of the repressing within church environments, black church environments, even predominantly white church environments, that all of that repressing actually can surface in these meditative dharma communities. So there's a sense of finding ease and not needing to repress. And there are a number of writers who have talked about that explicitly, Hmm. including Zenju and Lama Rad, they write about this at great length, how important the church was and still is to them, but how they could not be full people within a church environment. And I know that that's true for many, many more. Hmm. And then in terms of this question of why so many Black Buddhists are able to directly turn towards misogyny, homophobia, and transphobia, using Mm -hmm. Buddhist teachings is so important because it allows people, and this is true in terms of misogyny, homophobia, and transphobia, as well as with racism and white supremacy, these teachings allow practitioners to deconstruct what we take as true, what we take for granted as a kind of unerring truth, and to say, actually, everything is unstable. There's no solid truth in the same way that there's no person with an unchanging soul. Everything within Buddhism is subject to change, is subject Mm. to impermanence. And Mm. if we can really adopt that teaching and internalize it, we can look at how, for example, female-bodied people have been treated and say the rationale for thinking of women in certain ways is really very unstable and is simply a construct that all of the homophobia and transphobia that is espoused similarly comes from certain 
social constructs, but it's not actually true. What mm. I love about Buddhism and this teaching of impermanence and this teaching that everything is subject to change is that we can see a kind of ebb and flow and we can see transitions. And we can also see that the constructs in our minds can change. And so our ways of thinking, even the ways in which our society tends to center certain bodies, certain identities, and marginalize others, all of that can change and actually be transformed. So I feel like this core teaching in Buddhism on impermanence gives us, you could say, a ground to stand on. Even if that ground shifts too, what we are doing is deconstructing those truths we take for granted. And that is true for every aspect of how we are oppressed. Hmm. Well, then for our last question, I'd like to ask about one of the big takeaways from your work. Part of your writing and research focuses on the inner lives of Black Americans and the psychological as well as medical toll it can take to live in a country with profound structural racism. So how have you seen Buddhism as uniquely able to help Black Americans focus on their inner lives and find a sense of peace, if that's the right word, amidst the chaos of living in a white supremacist society and in an era marked by visible hate crimes, antagonism toward critical race theory, and ongoing police violence against Black Americans? Actually, the word that most comes to mind as resonant is stability, hmm. which is to say that as we started off talking about in our conversation about the importance of being able to change our inner conditioning, even as we change our outer conditions. It's important mm -hmm. to have daily practices to which we can return. It's important to be able to tap emotionally into having a source of support. Maybe a word that is bandied about and I find apt is resourcing. It's important that we cultivate resources for ourselves and having these contemplative practices of coming back to the body, of turning towards our suffering, turning towards our emotional upheaval, the chaos in our minds, the true terror we often experience. Being able to interface with those emotions skillfully is building a reserve, is building a kind of inner strength, is building a kind of inner authority, to use James Baldwin's words. And that kind of inner authority is something that can't be taken away from us, even if our conditions change for the worse. So mm. in my mind, these practices, which are grounded in this religious tradition of Buddhism, are so vital because these practices give us these resources, they give us this inner authority. They allow us to cultivate a way of being in which we're fearless. And we truly are fearless because we are taking it all on. We're willing to confront what's going on in our minds as well as what's going on in our society. And instead of shirking away or repressing or avoiding, we're turning towards that depth of suffering and cultivating maybe muscles, but certainly a, an inner strength that is timeless, that is unshakable. That's what this practice is about. 
Thank you for that, and thank you for this conversation. That is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Rima Vesley-Flad. You can find an excerpt from her book, Black Buddhists and the Black Radical Tradition, in The Revealer's upcoming May issue at therevealer.org. And you can purchase Black Buddhists and the Black Radical Tradition online now. I'm Brett Crutch. I hope you'll join us for our next episode next month. We'll be discussing conversion therapy and ex-LGBTQ ministries with the director of Netflix's acclaimed documentary, Pray Away. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Cameron Anderson. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org.